This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. The COVID-19 pandemic is forcing our society to reckon with information and misinformation. Viral outbreaks have taken over cities and countries across the globe. How can you tell if what you're reading on social media is, in fact, the truth, an opinion, misinformation, or something lurking in the gray area between it all? Today on the show, we answer that and more with a deep dive, long-form interview with Lindsay Leininger. She is the nerdy girl in chief at Year Pandemic, a website where bona fide nerdy girls post real info on COVID-19. Lindsay is a public health scientist who teaches and writes about data-driven health policy. Her greatest professional passion is helping healthcare decision makers make a sense of medical data. Over her career, she has taught and trained policymakers, physicians, patient advocates, and executives about the intelligent use of public health and medical evidence. She is on the faculty at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, where she teaches courses at the intersection of health analytics, public health, and the healthcare industry. Prior to joining Dartmouth, she spent a decade designing and leading regulatory science engagements for public health insurance programs, both in academic and think tank settings. Lindsay received her PhD from the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. Today's interview is going to be a little different than most. We recorded over two sessions. The first was in the fall of 2020, right before the winter case surge hit the U.S. I then followed up with Lindsay a few months later in the winter of 2021, right as COVID-19 vaccines started to roll out across the globe. All right, so we are talking to Dr. Lindsay Leininger. Lindsay, how are you? I'm great. It's so nice to be with you, Gunnar. This is an awesome interview for me for a few reasons. One, because we actually get to talk to a health expert when they talk about health experts on the news. You are one. (laughs) But most importantly, you're actually one of my professors at the Tuck School. So this is a super, super cool interview with, uh, for me, and thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's super cool for me, too, to be with such an engaging and awesome student. So I pre- I Go talk, it. right? I know, seriously, seriously. <laughs> so you taught healthcare analytics in society uh, back in the winter term, right before the pandemic sort of began. Uh, and I have to start with the story because it's one that I just think about so often. And the la- really the last day of the term in, in the end of February, beginning of March, we all found out that a healthcare worker from the local medical center had just returned from Italy, has, was tested for the coronavirus and still went to a party with a bunch of tuck students. And I remember being in a panic myself and finding myself in your office being like, oh my God, what should I do? And I think you said, just leave. <laughs> <laughs> and that was sort of how my entry to the pandemic world began. It, you know, that just brings up so many, like, like I feel viscerally that memory, if that makes sense, you uh-huh. know, sitting here on an audio broadcast, I'm, I'm trying to make people understand how I feel, which I obviously can't, but I think we all have that memory, right? 
And like that memory, I remember that conversation in my office where I was like, Gunner, we just don't know about transmission dynamics. You have a respiratory chronic illness, <laughs> you know, stay away from Tuck. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that very well. And I also remember in our class when the coronavirus first emerged in China, we were supposed to talk about flu data and predicting flu outbreaks. And I was like, maybe let's not do flu outbreaks. We're gonna sort of put aside that lesson and we're gonna talk about this new infectious disease outbreak in China. Like it was sort of an exotic thing mm -hmm. that wasn't going to upend all of our lives three weeks later. Um, and that is seared in my head too, like just, it is amazing how that happened. It is really amazing how that happened. I like I will I, I said before we were recording that a bunch of alumni from that class feel like we got in at the right time. And the real reason is because since then you've started or helped start Dear Pandemic and the Nerdy Girls. So I need to ask, is there a trademark for the Nerdy Girls slogan? <laughs> Gunner, isn't that a great question? And it's one that our team has asked actually. Um you know, I, I don't, it, so no, there is no trademark for those nerdy girls. And, and for your listeners, those nerdy girls are an all-female team of now a dozen MD, PhD, public health scientists, nurses, demographers, health policy experts like myself. And we've been running an educational campaign called Dear Pandemic since March that helps people stay safe and stay sane throughout this pandemic. And as part of our educational campaign, our, our home base is really Facebook. We have about 42,000 followers um, as of my last check of it. Um, we also have sort of satellite um, presences on Twitter and on Instagram. We've launched a, a Querida Pandemia, a Spanish language page. Um, and we're doing just a ton of traditional media too. So those nerdy girls are very much doing the work that Gunner does and his patient advocacy work, right? Because you're out there sort of democratizing data and evidence when it comes to cystic fibrosis specifically, but also just diseases in general. And I feel like me and my team are democratizing data and evidence about the pandemic so everyone can stay safer. Absolutely. And I think I want to just jump into that data, you know, evidence world. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got a few questions here. The first is, why do you think misinformation is so prevalent? There's a public health word, prevalent. Yes. <laughs> that I took away from your class. <laughs> uh, why do you think misinformation is so prevalent in this day and age? Yeah, I think there are a couple reasons. I think if we're talking specifically about the pandemic, it's because we're in this heightened context of uncertainty and anxiety. And where all of our brains are sort of swimming in cortisol and swimming in fear, I think there is kind of amplified opportunity for the bad stuff to really make its way um, throughout society. So I think just the, the psychological juices that we're all swimming in are very favorable to conspiracy theories right now. So that's kind of strike one. I think strike two is that compared to sort of past public health crises of this scale, we do not have a single trusted messenger in this country. We are no longer in a media world where the CDC issues a press release, the traditional media write about it, we as the lay public consume it, 
and we're all on the same page, right? I mean, we've seen the emergence of social media, we've seen trust just be shattered in terms of a single source of truth. And that trust has now gone to many different places in the information ecosystem. So I think this sort of fractured information ecosystem is strike two. And then I honestly think strike three is something that, that I am wrestling with and having a real personal sort of accounting with is that we are not doing a good enough job training the public about what science is and is not. Science is a method, it will change, it is uncertain, it's not a stable set of facts. And we need to get better educating the public through this so that these misinformation conspiracy theories don't have quite as much truck. So, so on, on that, that second strike, really the trusted institution, yeah. I, I actually remember back in January, my, my dad hosts a radio show in the mornings in New York, in the New York, New York metro area. And he had me on one morning, probably before one of our classes, actually. And he, <laughs> you know, they were talking about, uh, you know, traveling down to the Super Bowl as their radio show does every year. Um, and they were talking about what mask I wear on when I when I travel, and I've always worn an N95 mask. So yeah, I, you I, always I, have. I yeah. remember you telling me that like long before the pandemic. Yeah. So I remember being ahead of that game, but I remember in that you know my that little bit on the radio show, I said I trust the CDC entirely, and I feel like that was maybe like maybe too early in, in the whole world of the pandemic to really say that because I think. Well, I do want to trust the institutions that are designed to keep us safe. Uh, they've certainly been stressed beyond any point that I think they've ever been stressed, you know, in, in, in modern time. Um, so, like, beyond that, though, do you think there's a social responsibility for social networks that are distributing all this news and media to, to strike down misleading pandemic propaganda? I do. So I think... I do. I mean, I'm not a media scholar, but the media scholars I listen to, like Jevin West at the University of Washington, absolutely, you know, there's a responsibility. But I think there's a responsibility that I put back on, on me as a scientist. And I congratulate you as sort of a public-facing patient advocate for doing, which is we're focusing a lot on misinformation and playing defense, but really the best defense is a strong offense if we're going to stick with like sports and sports radio, <laughs> right? Like, and, and my thing is we have to flood the information waves with good information. I mean, that is so much more important over time in terms of trust building. So when I actually come up and say, hey, look, you know what? Masks are a good thing. <laughs> Don't believe what you're hearing. Otherwise, people will only trust me because I have been serving them trustworthy information that is positive for a long time. So I think that's why, you know, what you do and like, I think you and I are wired in a similar way where we like, don't just play defense, right? Like we're out there playing offense. Like we're going to like get out the good stuff. And I feel like that's, that's a key piece of this puzzle. That's perhaps getting lost a little bit in the overarching narrative. Yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, and I, I do think that a reason why um, it's so hard for so many people is because there is a lot of technical information that goes along with, you know, data science and, and things like that. So, and it's really one of the things that I love so much about Dear Pandemic is that you're making that technical information accessible. Um, so maybe I just answered that in my next question, but do you think there's a technical barrier between average people and the broader healthcare sector? And how do we overcome that technical barrier? 
So I do. And, and honestly, I appreciate this question because it is my life's work, right? I teach data diligence to healthcare leaders and future healthcare leaders. I teach critical appraisal to physicians and physician leaders, right? So my, my whole mission as an educator is to bridge the statistical, this data, this evidence barrier between the lay public and um, the medical establishment, if you will. <laughs> and I think the good news on that front is that it is doable, but we have to get better. I mean, this is really on PhDs. Like, and sometimes people just want it like with a cat meme and a laugh as opposed <laughs> to some like archaic, you know, scientific article. So that's what Dear Pandemic's all about. We're like, here are the highlights and, you know, here's a little bit of levity. Um, because I don't think it's too cognitively demanding to expect the lay public to keep up with a bunch of medical abstracts. Like that's nuts, right? Which is why we have to sort of lift up and grow an entire new cadre of professionals who do science communications. And frankly, you're one of them. So please keep at it. <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think what I want to see really out of the, even the medical profession is from a young age, as soon as people get into the healthcare world and you know, medical care world, you know, they're empowered to understand what's going on, not just to go to the doctor and immediately take whatever they say as truth, but to really have a conversation. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I really want to see um, as a, you know, a silver lining out of this, out of this health crisis. I think a lot of people are just more interested in it. Um, but on that data point, you know, when you look at coronavirus data, what are some of the trends that you look for, um, you know, when you're watching the news or seeing things pop up? Yeah, thanks for that question. I really want to focus on a word in it specifically, which is trends. I'm really looking for whether or not things are going up or down. Um, so that that's a big one. And then sadly, let's like be candid. The trends are not friendly to us right now. They are going in the wrong direction. So I look at cases, I look at trends, I look at hospitalizations, and I look at deaths. I look at the same things that everybody else does. I think what I also try to keep my pulse on though, and this is a little bit squishier, I keep my pulse on pandemic fatigue because what I worry a lot about is people just numbing out to those quantitative metrics. You know, like we, COVID Act Now, great compendium, New York Times, great compendium. I think there's some really good data resources, but right now what I'm seeing that really stresses me out is people, for example, posting pictures on Facebook of their indoor parties. Like, I think people are just not even like caring anymore <laughs> about doing the right thing. Um, so, you know, I, that might be a little ironic, Gunner, coming from a, from a data professor that what I'm trying to keep my eye on is something a little mushier, but yet here we are. The State of Health will be right back with Lindsay Leininger. Yeah, I, I, there definitely is a degree of pandemic fatigue and and everything. But I, I do also think that, you know, the world that I come from is like learning how to live with an infectious pathogen around me 24-7, you know. Totally. I'm the kind of person that where, you know, any virus, whether it's RSV or coronavirus or, or anything even worse, it, it threatens to be life-altering. And I, I think that uh, learning how to live with some of these things in this world is is important for me at least. Um, and, and I do also agree with you that I think, uh, you know, really educating the public about how to do these things safely is a priority for, for me. And it's priority for my, 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 you know, close social network because, you know, there is a degree of, I think, socialization that does have to happen on small scales. You know, like I, when yeah. I 
you know, go see people outside or, you know, when I go on walks or hikes, like, you know, those are things that I'm just very, very diligent about. And it's important for me to make sure that my, my friends, family are all doing the right thing. No, I agree. And, and, you know, it's interesting when we talk about pandemic fatigue and we talk about um, the cognitive science behind what uncertainty and anxiety do to your brain, people go two ways on the risk scale. They either just say, forget it. I'm going to go throw a rager at a bar or they, they maladaptively hole up and like, don't, don't do things like take an outdoor walk, socially distanced with a friend. So I think we all have to check ourselves in both directions. And I think that frankly, like we have a lot to learn from patient advocates, from the disability movement, right? I mean, you all who have lived experience living with, you know, uncertainty and disease and um, technological adaptations. I, I feel like your voices are always important, but never more so than now. Yeah, there's definitely a lived experience aspect to what's going on and, and how that will inform future behaviors. So we just talked about the trend a little bit. Um, as of today, we're recording at the end of October here. Um, cases are rising across the world at an alarming rate. You know, not just the U.S. anymore, but like Europe is going through an absolute explosion. You know, there's there are some really serious things going on around the world. How does the world get out of this? You know, where like where's the line where we can pull ourselves out of this never ending spread? I think, it, you know, I wish I could say there's going to be something that wraps us all up with a neat bow and we can say pandemic is done, but that's not how pandemics end. So here's what's going to happen. I think none of us have a crystal ball, but it's going to be some combination of therapeutics and hopefully a vaccine and people people's behavior, frankly, um, becoming more adaptive. And it will, you know, that the people I listen to think that COVID will become endemic in the population, which means it will linger, it will potentially be seasonal, it will stick around in a less sort of virulent form. So that's not a very satisfying end. But um, I, I think we need to steal ourselves that it's not going to be one magic bullet. It's just going to be a bunch of things that each a bunch of imperfect things are going to add up <laughs> to doing the trick. Yeah, I think it's a, a great analogy, calling it imperfect interventions, really. And yeah. it's it's almost like, uh, I, I feel like there's just people are hanging on this very distant, far off, you know, mirage of what they hope will happen. Um, you know, and I mean, I'm, maybe I'm one of those people, you know, I am planning a wedding with my fiance. It's like, we're like, what are we going to do? Um, but at the same time, you know, I've watched many of my friends have to cancel their own wedding. So it's hard for me to feel bad about myself. Um, and, and I just think it's going to be one of those things where you're right. Like learning to live with, you know, uncertainty and, and everything else that goes along with life feels very distant, but that's, that's just, I think part of life. Yeah. Everything is very uncertain to begin with. So, um, it's and just, I Oh, I'm sorry. Just, no, no, just to your point, Gunnar, like, you know, because you have lived with a chronic disease, that there is no magic pill. So while there can be improvement, there's no here, Gunnar, I'm going to give you a pill and it's going to cure your cystic fibrosis. And I feel like a lot of people who don't have that lived experience to date are struggling with the fact that, you know, a vaccine is going to help, but it's not going to be hundred percent. There's not going to be a shot. That's going to cure us all. There's not going to be a pill. That's going to cure us all. It's going to be a lot of little things and us just sticking together to do the things that scientists want us to do that will ultimately bat it down. And it's not going to be like a sexy wonder pill. <laughs> <laughs> that should be trademarked a sexy wonder pill. <laughs> 
Uh, so I want to go back into data here before we kind of move on to the rest of the, the interview. But do you think states are doing a good job with their, their data reports? Yeah, I think that's going to depend on the state. But I do have a lot of empathy for states. I, I The first chapter of my career was as a state health policy data contractor. So I have a lot of empathy for them. I think in general, they're doing pretty well. And, you know, I'm going to give a shout out right here to New Hampshire state data infrastructure. They've had to stand up something really important on a low budget and very little time. So I, you know what, like my hat's off to the states for the most yeah, part. For sure. And Dr. Ben Chan, the state uh, epidemiologist at Dartmouth grad. He's great too, incidentally. Yeah, like, yeah, shout out to Dr. Chan. Thank you for your service. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. So you've been quoted by the New York Times, among other news organizations, about the risks inherent with indoor dining. Can you talk about that and what other activities are quote unquote risky? Yeah, and that's really, these are things that kind of break my heart as a person. And, and it's something I've said in other outlets is that there's so many times in this pandemic where my inner human is just at war with my inner scientist. And I think dining's one of them. I mean, I think indoor dining in a restaurant setting is a risky activity, just full stop. We have to be candid about it. And um, yet I really greatly sympathize and have reached out to people like Jarrett Burke, the owner of Blues, saying, Jarrett, like, can we talk, can I get smarter about your situation so we can like think on good alternatives and suggestions, you know? And like, there's no thought, more thoughtful person than Jarrett about these issues. So, you know, I think, yeah. So I wish I could say it's not risky. I can't say that it's risky, but restaurant owners are scrappy and innovative and have some good ideas about, you know, drive-through for example, um, that can help get us out of this. Similarly, like my hockey mom is currently at war with my inner scientist. We're seeing a lot of outbreaks now associated with ice rinks here in New Hampshire. And you know, we're having some hard conversations among hockey parents in Hanover about the implications for our kids. And like, dude, hockey is a risky activity. Yeah. Like we got to get real candid about this real quick. Um, as much as my son loves it and his teammates too, like we got to get real. I, I've had the same internal dilemma. You know, I think hockey is such a huge part of my life. Whether not, I don't know if you knew that, but it's- I did huge... because there's pictures of you like playing hockey, yeah. and, like you proposed to your girlfriend, like on yep. ice and yeah. So yeah, no, it's a huge part of my life and exercise is a huge part of cystic fibrosis care. So yeah. for me, you know, playing hockey two to three times a week is a norm that I'm trying to figure out how to navigate. And it's something I've actually had a, a very long conversation about with my physicians in the last couple of weeks here. Like, what is, can I do it? Can I not do it? Uh, you know, where, where is the trade-off between risk and, you know, the personal reward of hockey? You know, I, I think I do have, you know, every expectation to play in some way, but I, again, like also, you know, I wouldn't say fearful, but definitely diligent about, what's going on in the state of New Hampshire. You know, all the ranks are closed right now for, for yep. a couple of weeks. And it's definitely something that I'm keeping my eye on. And, you know, maybe selfishly, I'm looking forward to ponds freezing over. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh my gosh. My husband and I, so my husband is also a professor at Tuck and, and a data guy. And he and I are like, can we set up some sort of like frozen pond outdoor league? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm 
is there a way we can adapt sort of like Jared's being super innovative in the like restaurant business model space? Can we be innovative? In the, yeah, like, it has to happen. <laughs> it, it has to happen because if hockey players don't get their ice, there's going to be like some sort of uprising. <laughs> oh, there is going to be an uprising. Like, you know, I'm a native Texan where football was my yeah. hockey growing up. Um, probably resonates with you. And, and now I'm here in New England. We're like, Hockey is like, <laughs> so, uh, this summer I was fielding questions from all my dear friends back home who are like high, Texas high school football coaches, right? And now I'm like dealing with this as a hockey mom. So. Yeah. So I want to say on that, like when you watch a college football stadium get filled with fans right now, like how, do, how does that make you feel? Like I watch that and I'm just completely blown away <laughs> that and some of these schools reaction, are allowing it to happen. My reaction is... <gasps> I mean, it's, it's, I have an audible gasp. I mean, I think outdoors is better than indoors, but nonetheless, I don't, I don't think that's a good compromise. I don't. So I, there's real no, no way to sugarcoat that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like, I, I watch some of these, these, you know, it's really college football that's doing it. You know, I think the NFL stadiums are a lot less crowded, still not great, but it just, I watch, you know, some of these schools in the South that are just filling their, their stands. And I'm like, what is going on here? I want to like watch Johns Hopkins track those populations, you know, <laughs> you see, see what happens with there, because I think that's an important, you know, it's, a, it's an important congregation to really watch because it's seeding, it could be seeding, you know, community spread in, in these small rural college towns. And it's the stuff that like, you see that in the stands and you wonder what's happening indoors too, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know that often college football, I mean, I love college football. I love tailgating. I am a native Texan. Like this is like part of my, you know, part of my happy socializing. But you do wonder about all the things that are going around with it. Like, are they taking the like happy, jolly, you know, are they taking that party indoors after, yeah. the, you know, after they're going to the game and you know, everybody has really good intentions, but once alcohol gets involved and like football and socializing, like even the best laid plans can fall apart. So you just have to wonder, like, is that a proxy for other things that's also going on? <laughs> so on that, on that thought, like, how do you think colleges are handling the return to school? You know, I saw earlier this week, you know, obviously we're recording into October here, the University of Michigan is having a pretty serious situation where they had like an emergency stay at home order. You know, I was worried initially about, you know, the return to Dartmouth, but I think we're handling it quite well here at Dartmouth. Other schools, my alma mater BC was in the news for, you know, letting an outbreak get out of hand there, but now they're on the right side of things. How do you think that's going? Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, this is going to be one of those things where the final accounting is going to take decades for researchers to tease apart because look, you can't separate out any given college's protocols from just sheer good or bad luck. It's a very hard thing to do. <laughs> so, you know, where there is a where there is a region where there is an outbreak raging, a college is going to have an outbreak absent, frankly, just luck. And so, you know, I'm not in the business of sort of taking down certain colleges or not, you know, I, I have my, my personal opinions. I think we need to sort of wait a pause and see like what the proper research does. But what I can say about my own college and my own sort of like university, you know, position is I think Dartmouth is being as protocol compliant as possible, but I do not think a good protocol can outsmart a tricky virus during a raging epidemic. So 
if we have some sort of a horrible guy, I mean, I hope this doesn't happen, but if we have some sort of out horrible outbreak here in the upper Valley, I think we can anticipate it will spread in the college yeah. because sadly that's how viruses work. And, and this is, if there's one message mm -hmm. I can get across to your listeners, Gunnar, is that there is no out protocoling a risky environment. We saw that with the White House Rose Garden. Daily rapid antigen testing is not going to out protocol a sneaky virus and a high risk activity. So protocols aren't going to save us. They will help, but they're not going to like, they're not salvation. It's interesting you say that, you know, I look at the NFL who is spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars just to keep the league going. And if teams can't escape it, then, you know, I see that as like the gold standard. If the NFL can't outsmart it, then who else can, you know, like for yeah, some reason, it's just like baseball my too. Like <laughs> I, Right? There's just no, we can't protocol our way out of a pandemic. I'm sorry. It's just the hard truth. So the holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving here in the States will obviously look a lot different this year, unfortunately, I think, with the way things are going. Are, are we also in jeopardy of losing what many people consider the holiday season? Oh, in the traditional I sense. I wish I didn't have to say this, but I do. Yes. And we write extensively about this at Dear Pandemic. We have written about Safer Halloween. We have written about Safer Thanksgiving. We now have bylines and Slate and other places where the nerdy girls are writing about the holidays. I mean, you just can't get enough holiday stuff, but I've got to be candid here. You know, Dr. Fauci has gone on TV and said his daughters are not traveling to him for Thanksgiving. I am not traveling to see my family the holidays will not and should not look like they normally do. As hard yeah. as it is for me to say that. It's, I mean, it's true. Uh, we've already told our parents, you know, we're not coming home. It's, uh, you know, I feel safest here, I think, in the Upper Valley. Back, you know, home for me is New York. And that's yeah. just, you know, it's a huge population dense area. And they've done a good job recently, but still on risk, not willing to take. Also, my, my sister has, you know, a few month old daughter. So it's Aww. it's hard for all of us, but it's it's Aww. just, the, you know, it's the, the reality of, the, the world we live in, I think. Um, speaking of a lot of the writing, you've done a lot of writing recently. You had a great op-ed in the Washington Post not long ago about building bridges in the public health world. You know, can you talk about that and what you were trying to get at? I do. So one thing, thanks for, thanks for this question, because this is a topic near and dear to my heart. So I'm going to tell a little bit of the story. So I am a native Texan as has come up. I grew up in the reddest of the red dots in this country, like a far North Dallas suburb. It is super, super red in terms of political, religious, you know, very conservative. Um, since then, you know, I went to Princeton for undergrad. I, you know, spent some a lot of time in Chicago, 16 years. I'm a faculty member at Dartmouth now. And most of the people I've come across since the age of 18 have been deeply blue. So I have this kind of interesting life as a bridge, a personal bridge between political and cultural conservatives and political and cultural liberals. And so I felt compelled to write this op-ed that I think those of us in the public health field, many of my colleagues lean very left. We need to get better at building bridges with political and conservative communities because we have lost them. And it doesn't have to be the case. George W. Bush, pioneer in the field of AIDS and HIV, really pioneering work. There are lots of social conservatives who are doing great work in gun control, for example, um, and in criminal justice reform. Doesn't have to be this way. So I think this is sort of an internal exploration for how can like me and fellow scientists become better messengers to political and 
social conservatives who've just lost faith in our message. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, after reading your, your, your article, I thought about one conversation we had in class, uh, maybe towards the end of the term, where you know another student asked about you know are there political activists inside some of these apolitical organizations, and I think you you very greatly said you know I, I think everyone just wants to do their job. Yeah. You know, no one no one thinks about politics when they're you know evaluating a drug or evaluating you know data that comes across you know Medicaid spending. You know, I think everyone just wants to make sure that they're doing the right thing, and that's the experience that I've certainly had. Yeah. You know, with some of our advocacy work, and I think everyone wants the same thing. It's just the messaging that's around it. And a lot of these apolitical, you know, federal institutions are just being dragged in the mud during a political season. And it's it's really a shame to watch, I think. It's hard. And I think what it's taught me is I don't think that distrust is going away. Like I'm a pretty straight shooter. I am not a political person. Like I, you know what? And still there are pockets of people who I am not the right messenger for. So I think one of our my strategies going forward and like us as a field, we need to find trusted messengers in those communities, right? Who have some shared values as us. Like we need to find, we need to find people in, for example, the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn who has been, who have been struggling to comport with public health guidance. We need to find folks back home in Texas who are evangelical pastors who have some shared values around public health. Like I think you and I are going to have trust among people who are inclined to trust us. And we have to reach out to, you know, folks with shared values, mm-hmm. give them good t- content and let them do their thing. I mean, I think the same could be said for finding people who can get that message out within, you know, student populations even. Absolutely. You know, also, you know, oh my gosh. I've got, a, you know, another dear friend of mine with CF who's also in business school, you know, at, you know, one of our peer schools and she left, like she had to leave, you know, the, her, her housing just because it was getting out of hand where she was. I'm so um, and like, you know, I think that there is like a, there's a notion out there that that is absolutely true that there are people with you know pockets of populations that need to be the ones that can lead those folks and, and build bridges like like you said in, in your in your in your op-ed which I thought was just so great I'll put it in the show notes for for our listeners to to read. Oh, um, so we're we're coming towards the end here. You know I've got a few more questions. What do you think will be one of the most important lasting lessons from this health crisis in time? I think the importance of prevention. I mean, we we have a healthcare system that is amazing in terms of treatments and, and therapeutics and vaccines. I think we are not, our society is not very well wired to deal with an infectious disease threat through a prevention front. So I think that's a lasting thing. I think the whole digital revolution, you know, version whatever we're in now, 2.0, 3.0, I don't think that's going anywhere, right? All the remote work, the remote learning. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really, there's going to be a lot of stuff that lingers. I mean, we're going through a collective trauma right now. And I think it's a little unpredictable how, how it's going to affect our society going forward. I, I, I think you're definitely right. I, I, I envision people, you know, just locked in their homes right now, just thinking about the next great innovation, you know, so yeah. maybe that's just the NBA inside of me. Yeah, no, good, good, Gunner. That's how I, yes, that's how I want you to think. Um, I, I do hope there's some innovative uh, 
green shoots that spring up from this. That, mm -hmm. So finally, I, I don't want to let you get away without a question about clinical trials. It was one of the <laughs> things that we discussed heavily in, uh, in our class. Um, I have a, a lot of complex feelings about the way the media and commenters are treating clinical trials right now. Everyone seems to be an expert on Twitter, at least, about what a clinical trial is, what patients are going through. Um, first, why are they the gold standard? And then second, why do we care about their external validity? Oh boy, this is great. This is like student turned examiner on professor, right? These are like questions straight out of my assessments in class, right? So I think we like randomized clinical trials because it's a flip of a coin that determines whether or not you get the experimental treatment or the control treatment. And that is the only difference between the two populations who get those two um, treatments. And so that's nice because then we can say, yeah, that pill caused it or that pill didn't. But unfortunately, it's really hard to sign up people to, you know, flip, be willing to be the flip of the coin and to keep them in very controlled conditions to track them properly. So uh, often clinical trial populations don't look like the rest of us. So how do we know if that drug is really going to work or not? And I think we're seeing this. Um, I'm going to give, I'm going to ground this an example like that I'm paying a lot of attention to, which is vaccine trials. So we, we have some big vaccine trials in the field. We're awaiting their results later this fall with bated breath. And I will note that there are no kids in these trials. Yeah. <laughs> so or people with CF. Or people with CF. Or, you know, there's probably a lot of people like me, frankly. Um, so it's great in the sense that like they'll all have about 30,000 people. So large enough sample sizes to detect sort of statistical anomalies, but there's a lot of exclusions from these trials that I, you know, like it's gonna take a while. You know, I, I will say what my one gripe with like the clinical trial world has always been the inclusion and exclusion criteria, which I know as a student of public health are critical to the success of the trial design, mm -hmm. but you know, without getting too personal, like one of my dear friends with CF unfortunately lost her battle because she did not meet the inclusion criteria for, you know, one of the, you know, really breakthrough clinical trials that we had a few years ago. And because of that, they're left waiting. You know, it's, it's hard to see folks, you know, getting and benefiting from an experimental medication while other folks can't get it just because the clinical trial has to go its course. And I think that's, from, you know, my patient advocate, if I allow me to put my patient advocate hat on for a moment, you know, I think there has to be like a really large conversation about, you know, compassionate use and really what, a, you know, the, the quote unquote right to try law really looks like, you know, I, from one hand, from the, the perspective of a patient population, I understand the importance of the clinical trial and why that data is so important to inform care decisions. But at the same time, I think it's, you know, it's very hard for me to really you know, completely discourage that compassionate use. Um, and, and I think it's, it's one of those ethical dilemmas that's just going to, I think, persist, unfortunately, beyond this, the scope of time. Well, and you've hit at the heart of um, the public health dilemma, which is making a treatment decision for one individual is quite different than making an approval for an entire population. And I think this is kind of where the rub is, but, but I'm going to end this on hope because I look to the ALS community for ways that you can sort of navigate these things together. So I have a college classmate who um, is also a, an economist who sadly has ALS. And so over the years, you know, he and I have been in 
in touch about the sort of yin and yang of needing of regulators needing to make population level decisions, but we need to honor patients who are struggling with this right now. And, and I really, I look to the ALS community. I look to people like you, because I do think there's some innovation in trial design that can actually thread this needle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I do think that the ALS community especially with spearheading, you know, their right to try, you know, yes, campaign exactly. has been at I mean, the forefront of this. And I, you know, to end, like you said, on, on hope here, you know, I, as a patient advocate, I look back to the AIDS community in the nineties about what they did. Like that's the gold standard for how a patient population can really transform the medical industry. Um, so, but Lindsay, thanks for, for joining the show. This has been great. Um, dear pandemic, check them out on, uh, on social media. Uh, and uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you around Tuck when, when things get back to, back to normal. Gunner, thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to jump a few months into the future. All right, so this is a first for the State of Health podcast. We are doing a then versus now. Uh, we first were talking to Lindsay a couple months ago back in the fall before the, the big winter wave sort of struck. And now here we are in March, and we have three highly effective and safe vaccines under emergency youth authorization from the FDA. Uh, first, I want to get your thoughts on that. Did you think we would get this, uh, these kinds of vaccines available to use in less than a year since the pandemic sort of washed up on, the, on American shores? What a great question, Gunnar. So my answer is yes and no. And I'll start with the no piece. Just my brain didn't think, I think like a lot in the scientific community, our, my brain just didn't think that that would be possible. But, but the yes piece of this is that I never bet against the ingenuity of American innovation, especially in the life sciences front. So knowing the resources that were going into it and all the bright um, brains that were on this, I wouldn't have put the probability at zero, if that makes sense. But nonetheless, I celebrated like everybody else when I first learned. And in fact, I remember where I was in my kitchen the day I read the Pfizer headline and I started bawling. Because <laughs> I'm like, this is going to end. <laughs> I, I had a actually pretty similar experience when I, for I, so I've been vaccinated for all the listeners out there. I, I, I got, um, I got the Moderna vaccine and there I was like weeping as I was getting a shot. And it was kind of, I, I wish I could tell my younger self what it was going to be like, cause I was terrified of shots as a kid growing up. And yet there I was just, just scratching and clawing to get my own vaccine. Um, I, wh- when do you think the effect of vaccines will start to show up in like the case data? You know, is it is it already showing up or do you think it's going to take some time for um, the case counts to reflect the fact that vaccines are in the population? Yeah, so I think the good news is that the pace of vaccination is accelerating with each passing day. We're not at a point yet where vaccines are at a level that they provide the community immunity or the herd immunity threshold that we all hear so much about. But I'm hopeful. I mean, if you listen to Fauci, if you listen to others, I'm hopeful that later this summer we're going to really start seeing that threshold nearing and, and hopefully a little uh, exponential decay. (laughs) We've all been hearing about exponential growth, but we're sure looking forward to that exponential decay. Yeah, you and me both. Um, About that herd immunity or community immunity, do do you think 
individual states and cities can reach that threshold? Or is this really more of like a national thing that needs to be achieved or even a global thing that needs to be achieved uh, for, for the virus to, to really kind of go down to an acceptable level for us to return to some sort of normality? That's such a good question. And there are, as you alluded to, two pieces to this. So even once this sort of magical herd immunity threshold, you know, I say magical with air quotes. I know we're not, <laughs> we're not visually, you know, you can't see us, but you can just hear us. Um, once we hit this th herd immunity threshold in the country, we're still gonna see pockets of outbreaks, right? So there can be local places that still have outbreaks. And again, I think you sort of previewed this wisely in your question. As long as there's COVID in the world and not enough vaccine for the world, we're at risk of it entering into our communities for flare-ups, for local flare-ups. So it's gonna be a bit of a dance for a while, but I am hopeful that it will be um, kind of a, a lower simmer as opposed to like a raging boil that we've been in. Yeah, I guess after all, it is, it is a global health crisis and not just an American health crisis. No, that's right. That's right. And I think that, you know, just the movement of people and travel and this interconnected world we live in means that as, as you know, one place being affected means we're all affected. But I do hope that it's going to be at a lower level that we're going to be able to like, you know, get it stamped out instead of letting it burn like a forest fire. Gotcha. My, my last question for you here, and then we'll, we'll end the before and, and after interview that we're doing here on the State of Health. How does the pandemic end? It's, it's funny to be able to think about it, that like the end is maybe not near, but in sight. How does this end? And does it really even end? Does, does, does COVID-19 become endemic in the population? Is it just going to be around forever? Where, where can we sort of move past this point in all of our lives? Boy, um, the acute phase will end. I don't know when, but I'm hopeful sooner rather than later, yeah. right? And, and I'm really hoping we see a big dent by late fall. And if, if all goes according to schedule, knock on something here, hopefully kids and younger kids can start getting vaccinated later this year for the older kids and early next year for the younger kids. And then I think we'll be in a completely different place where you and I can be talking about different things related yeah. to health. Yeah. I do think COVID's going to be with us. It will be a disease that we will get regularly vaccinated for that will occasionally flare up in places and, and for certain high-risk people. I, I don't think COVID's going away, unfortunately, but I am still hopeful that the acute phase of this will recede and recede pretty soon. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful for that as well. And as we were just saying before we, we, we started recording just now, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward today when I have to stop advocating for vaccine allocations for people with CF. And I know you're looking forward to the day when you can just go back to teaching. Uh, and, and hopefully that's sooner rather than later for, for all of us. Absolutely. I can't wait to retreat into my Ivy League. <laughs> Ivory Tower once again, and yes, um, <laughs> that will be that will be a good day. Well, Lindsay Leninger of Dear Pandemic, thanks again for for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is this has been really awesome. Oh, thank you, Gunnar. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at g17 Esiason, and you can check out my website at gunnarsiason.com. If you liked what you heard this week, be sure to subscribe to The State of Health and then leave a review and a rating. 
A big thank you to Lindsay Leininger and Dear Pandemic. Be sure to check out DearPandemic.org for the answers to all of your pandemic-related questions. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.